Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Lawyers Coach Podcast. My name is Oliver Hansard and each episode will feature either myself or Claire Rayson, both of us coaches and former lawyers, trying to find out what makes lawyers tick. In this series, we will be hearing from guests and experts to help us get under the skin of various cultures across the legal industry. And at the end of each episode, we will both be reflecting on what our guests have said. The Lawyers Coach podcast is brought to you by Client Talk and Hansard Coaching. Welcome to the latest edition of the Lawyers Coach podcast. In this episode, Claire Rayson speaks to Elizabeth Rimmer, Chief Executive of Lawcare. They talk about the new responsibilities of becoming a lawyer, vulnerability, values, purpose, mistakes and self-awareness. Claire starts by exploring Elizabeth's journey into the law. Looking at your profile, you didn't um, study law initially. So what made you go from um, (laughs) zoology to being a lawyer? So, yeah, I had an interesting journey into the law. I I did a zoology degree and I was actually going to stay on and do a PhD. And I had a position, a place to do that. And I started reflecting on whether or not a life in academia and science was for me. And I wasn't quite sure if that was my ilk. And I'd always had a long term interest as a kind of young person who was interested in um, miscarriages of justice is I'd always been interested in the law and how it was applied. I'd been very galvanized by the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four cases. So this was back in the the 80s when I was at school. And so I kind of kept thinking, oh, you know, I'm interested in the law. And I had no idea then that you could actually become a lawyer without having done a law degree. So then I looked into it all. I developed an interest in clinical negligence. So I was really quite, I guess, perhaps because I had a bit of a science background um, and again, felt that that was an area where often things had gone wrong for people and they weren't getting the redress that they were entitled to. So I became interested in that area of law and that's how I landed working at Lee Day. And I was the first trainee solicitor at Lee Day. That's my only claim to fame. Um, the firm is now much bigger than it is than it was then. So I moved into that. And then as I qualified, I I actually found that transition quite difficult, which is still a challenge that we face in the profession now, stepping up and taking on that, the weight of responsibility that you feel when you qualify. And I actually realized that although I was doing this great work, that the system wasn't really delivering what people wanted. And that when people came to see us as clients, They wanted to know, you know, why did my husband die on that operating table? Why was my son brain injured at birth? And actually, the system doesn't deliver that because litigation is about financially compensating people for loss. That's really what it's about. And you could never compensate people for the experience, the pain and the loss and the life changing injuries that they had had. And what you found was most cases settled without an admission of liability, that your client never got their day in court, so to speak, where that doctor or that medical professional would stand up and say, I'm sorry this happened. And I found that really frustrating. And I found the kind of listening to people's stories difficult you know I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning thinking you know what if I don't cut this the right way the you know our clients are going to lose 
Um, I found that really hard, the kind of emotional aspect of it. And realized that, you know, I, I had no training in how to handle the emotional aspect of law. It was, it's still not a part of legal training. And so I found all of that quite difficult. So I kind of thought, hmm, am I going to last the course in this? I think this is going to kill me if I do this for the rest of my life. So always thinking like a lawyer, I thought, mm, I'll have a little break. So I'll go and do an MA in medical law and ethics. So it'll look good on my CV. If I decide I want to come back, I won't have a, a kind of career break where I spent a year, you know, swanning around the world um, traveling. So I went off and did that MA in medical law and ethics because I thought, well, it's highly relevant to my area of practice and it'll give me a time to reflect. And I then didn't. Uh, I never came back to the law through pure nepotism. I landed up working for an international Alzheimer's charity. Um, so that's how I landed up in the voluntary sector. And then I did that for a number of years. And then I was thinking of moving on from my job prior to law care. And I thought, oh, it's time for a new challenge. Looked in The Guardian. And literally the first day I started looking, I saw the job for law care. And they were looking for a lawyer who had had experience of mental health and had worked in small charities. And I thought, well, that's got to be me. It was interesting to hear your reflection that you kind of felt a weight of responsibility on qualification. I wonder if we can dwell on that a bit more. I mean, what for you was was lacking? And, and you know, is there anything that you're doing now with law care that, that kind of addresses what you felt was missing? I think back then, and I don't think it was just the firm, I think this was a general perception that if you were reasonably able, you'd got through the period of training, you know, you're just able to do this job. And I think that you always felt there was more of a safety net while you still weren't fully qualified, that if something did go amiss, it wouldn't entirely be on your head because somebody else is meant to be looking out for you. Um, so I think that there's, it's a, it's a common, uh, phenomena which is still around because law care did a we did a large study last year called life in the law where we uh surveyed uk legal professionals about the culture and practice of law and how that's impacting their mental health and what we found was not surprisingly that the 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 group that we measured burnout as part of that the group that had the highest burnout scores were at the younger end of the profession and it wasn't the group the, the first age group, which was 21 to 26, which is the period of training and moving into qualification, uh, being qualified, it was the next age group, the group that were transitioning uh, into practice. And what we think happens is that when people make that transition up until that point, there's quite a lot of formal supervision in place because it's required as part of the sort of regulatory framework to qualification. The minute you qualify, there's often less of that supervision around and this sort of expectation that you're going to be able to do it all. I guess it's a bit like when you learn to drive. The first time you drive a car after your test is quite a scary moment and you sort of have to just get out there and, and learn. And I think sometimes we have a bit of an attitude to that in law that we, we don't recognise that actually people need that support to make that transition. And I think part of that is also driven by our mindset in law, that sense that there's no room for error. We're perfectionists. We're very driven. We set ourselves incredibly high goals and think, I should be able to do this. And then when you feel that moment of doubt, 
you're questioning your abilities all the time and that kind of undermines your confidence i think so i i think we need to be doing more around recognizing that that transition into practice is probably about the most vulnerable time in your legal career probably why we see challenges around retention in that age group is many people will do a couple of years and then they may exit the profession because they think they're not cut out for this. And I think that often comes from not having the right support, a mentor or somebody to speak to, or they may have qualified into an area of law that actually, uh, or practice that isn't really aligned with their own values and purpose. Do you think more needs to be done to, to create a space where those professionals can say, you know, actually, this is challenging for me? Yeah, I think there's lots of things that firms could be doing. And I think, you know, when we think about retention and recruitment and the talent war that's going on in um, the city firms, I think part of that's aligned to the post-pandemic world that we're in. Many people have reflected over the last couple of years, what do I want from life? What do I want from work? And where they feel those things aren't there for them and it's not cutting it for them, they're leaving. And I think it really comes down to culture. And I think that in the this post-pandemic world, I'd like to think that firms will wake up and see that just throwing money at a problem isn't going to be enough. Of course, there will always be people that will be very tempted and lured by the glittering prizes. But I think you're increasingly seeing a generation of younger people where that isn't the only thing. You know, they want a weekend where they can go and ride their mountain bike with their friends or get to their cousin's wedding. They're not prepared to give those things up for work and you get this kind of disconnect whereas I I think people you know I'm in my mid-50s I don't think this but I think there are a lot of people in the law who've been there done there got the t-shirt kind of think oh well this generation don't want to work they they don't have the same kind of mindset about it and actually I think it's because they they recognize that there's more to life than just um putting in those long hours uh, in law firms. So I think firms really need to be looking at their culture, but in a meaningful way. I think we see a lot of tick boxing. There's lots of consultants that will go in and help you deal with culture, you know, look at your culture and think about it. But it really comes from the top down and the bottom up. And I think what firms could really be doing would be thinking about creating an environment where people feel they belong, where they're respected, where they're valued, where they can do meaningful work, where or the work means something to them, where the way decisions are made about who gets promoted or who gets the work uh, are open and transparent, where poor behavior is not tolerated. I think another aspect of this is the people in law that tend to become managers or supervisors, the people who are really good at being lawyers, they may not be very good at managing people, but we're not trained to manage people. And that was another finding of our life in the law survey that less than half the people who had a management role had had any training or or support in how to manage others. And often what you find, if you have those responsibilities, you're still expected to meet a billing target on top of managing a team. So what's the first thing that slips off the edge of your desk when there's a competing obligation? It's that catch up with a colleague. Yeah, actually, that is probably the most important thing you can be doing to create a healthy culture where people feel 
they're valued and respected. Because if that catch-up gets cancelled, that person thinks, oh, well, they don't really care about me. I'm not important enough. So I think it's about helping firms recognizing that actually the greatest asset they have in their organizations are their people. And the law is a people business. Um, The work we do happens in our minds. We're interacting with clients, with colleagues. um, And those human skills and developing people is a significant part of this work. Yet that's the big part that's overlooked. Do you think there are firms that are starting to get it and are starting to think about, you know, how can we create a culture of openness where, you know, those that are stepping up are supported, are able to admit their mistakes, are able to say, you know what, actually, I'm having conversations with clients that are really challenging me and I need more than just to understand whether they can go to court or not. I need to be able to, you know thinking about my work as a coach you know you I think in that position you know need some support and some supervision when you're hearing stories I mean clinical negligence is a very extreme example but you know you're you're dealing with clients that are really sharing things that are very personal to them and you know and and their fears and hopes and and dreams I think I think there's lots in that. I think picking up your first question around, do I think firms are beginning to get it? I think some are, but I think there's a lot of virtue, virtue signaling that goes on. And I think that often the motivators for addressing these issues are not because people are genuinely signed up to it, it's because they see their clients wanting it. So in the world of um, ESG, which is becoming a much bigger benchmark by which large firms and many firms are being assessed um, if, if they want to be a panel or take on a new client, be on a panel, take on a new client. They're looking at those kind of aspects of, of your practice. What's interesting is I haven't done it for a while, but the last time that I had a little kind of poke around on some law firm websites looking at their kind of ESG statements, you see very little about their own people. What you'll see is climate change stuff, governance, um, about how they deliver to clients. Um, we're an excellent law firm. We're going to deliver excellent legal services. Well, I think that's a given. If you come to a law firm that's regulated with professionals in it, you're expecting that they know the legal work. Um, I think you're seeing pockets of innovation. You know, there are firms who have started um, working on a four-day week and have seen themselves become more productive. You're seeing firms that are moving away from billing targets and bringing in um, less of that kind of pressure. Uh, I think we still have fundamental challenges around, I think a big problem or big challenge is about how we measure success in law. We tend to look at outputs and how much money was been earned by the firm, what the profit ratio per partner is, all of that kind of stuff. The rankings, the league tables were so competitive. We're not actually measuring what really matters. What was the outcome for the client? Would they recommend us again? Did we get through this with the least cost to ourselves and our clients? And I think that we, we've we got some challenges around that because the, the, the measures we use to, to look at what success looks like tend to be things with numbers in them rather than the more qualitative stuff. So I think that makes it hard. I think that we're seeing pockets. If I'm completely honest, I, I think you're, you're seeing what you are seeing is um, people within firms, you'll have certain individuals that are really interested and signed up to this, but you get lots of microcultures in organizations. So 
it may be that you'll have a group of people over here that really get this, but there'll be some people over here who don't get it. But I, I think from I, I'm always an optimist. And I would say that from my general conversations with people, I think there's significantly more interest in the cultural aspect of law over the last couple of years. And I think the pandemic has catapulted that because it's woken people up to realize that actually, you know, when when people aren't in a physical space and they're all moved offline, I think it concentrates the mind on, well, what is this organization? What is it that makes us us kind of thing? So I, I'd like to think there are changes coming. Um, and but then, you know, picking up on the point you were making about the kind of emotional aspect of the work, I think generally, not generally, you know, we are not trained as legal professionals to understand our emotions or understand how they influence us. You're you're trained as a lawyer that you need to leave your emotions at the door and that if you bring your emotions into the room, that somehow that's going to cloud your rational legal brain, you're not going to be able to apply your knowledge to the facts. But the reality is, of course, we're massively influenced by our emotions. And law is highly emotive. It's about winning. It's about losing. It's about listening to people's stories. Many lawyers, you know, who were, as we've already touched on, work in personal injury or crime or family or immigration, employment, are working with vulnerable people who've had bad things happen to them. And you're listening to those stories. Personally, I would like to see as a compulsory part of legal education that there is more done around understanding emotion. And at Lawcare, actually, I hadn't thought I'd get a chance to plug this, um, is that we (laughs) run a program called uh, online educational resource called Fit for Law, which we developed with the Open University and the University of Sheffield, an evidence-based, peer-reviewed, free resource. Fit for Law 1 is about understanding yourself And it's all about your emotions and how to interpret them and how to manage them to help you sort of get through the stresses of life as a lawyer. Fit for Law 2 is coming out in January, and that is all about working with others. It's about relationships with clients, with colleagues, uh, with other lawyers, and understanding kind of emotional competence, why somebody may be behaving in a certain way. Uh, rather than just reacting to that, is trying to work out why that client might be phoning you 20 times and shouting at you and very angry. It may be that they're frightened or they're frustrated by their own situation. So helping people to see where other people are coming from can make you take things less personally. They're not really shouting at you. They're shouting about what's going on for them. So that's coming out in January. You know, one of the reasons behind this podcast is to share people's stories. And the reason we always start with, you know, how people came into law. I think sometimes people get imposter syndrome because, you know, maybe they didn't come from a family of lawyers or maybe it wasn't a lifelong dream to to get there. And the truth is most people just ended up falling into it for, you know, no rhyme or reason in particular. Um, and I think with some of the things that you've shared today and I'm, I'm I'm sure you've shared them in, in in different formats but you know it's you know it's powerful to hear actually I'm not alone in feeling this I'm not alone in thinking gosh actually this is a really challenging case and I want to be able to do more for this person um and I think the more we talk about it the more it will hopefully drive action um from people who are saying well actually it's not just me and I you know it's not good enough we need we need things to change 
the more people speak up, particularly people in senior positions who are leaders and role models for others, because we're so hierarchical in the law, it gives permission to other people. And being honest about things, you know, we, we touched on mistakes. As I've done one in webinar for a firm that did a whole program on mistakes, and I thought it was fantastic. They had partners, me, people talking about mistakes they'd made and saying to people, we all make mistakes. And if you make a mistake, come and tell us, don't sit on it. And the, the more, and that for junior members of the profession, hearing about senior people who've made mistakes, because there will not be a lawyer in the country who has not made a mistake at some point in their career, really opens that door up. And, and I think that's the same around mental health and talking about um, difficult clients you know, I think that that's something, certainly when we think about hybrid working, and although there are lots of benefits to that, one of the things people do miss from being in the real world with people is that you've had that difficult call, you can put the phone down, and nine times out of 10, you're going to return to the person opposite you and next to you, you go, oh my God, I've just had this phone call, and you <laughs> get it off your chest, and that you get that immediate, you've offloaded it, that person will listen and say, gosh, you know, I've had it. And you immediately feel better. And I think that what we find at Law Care is that when it's it's hard for people to pick the phone up, but when they call us or they email us or they send us a web chat, the feedback we get is just getting something off your chest makes you feel so much better about it. And I think we need to encourage much more of that open talking about when things are difficult because we're human and also being honest with clients. I was at a webinar earlier in the, uh, no webinar in-person event earlier in the week where somebody shared about with a client that about meeting client expectations, which is a big challenge in the law. And she was actually at a induction morning for her son in nursery and the client, she had the time booked out client was on touch. She emailed him back and said, I'm at the, you know, and the immediate response was, oh, that's terrific. I won't bother you. And now when she speaks to that client, he's asking her, how's your son getting on? And they made that connection. But she said, you know, prior to that, she kind of thought, I need to be replying to this client, even though I'm at my son's nursery. And that actually by telling people and being honest, what you find is most people are going to get that. And you've actually made a closer connection with that client and you've been honest and it wasn't the disaster you thought it was going to be. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating um, hearing more about what Lawcare do and, 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 you know, for me, opening up, you know, it certainly, you know, thinking about this transition period, which, you know, is something that often is overlooked. So thank you so much. Pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. I've been really pleased to have the opportunity to have this discussion. Thank you, Claire. Great conversation, Claire. What really stuck out in that conversation for you? There were two things, and both of them um, she raised early on in the conversation. One was the impact of of transitioning from trainee to associate, because I, I it it just really struck me that that's a real pinch point that I hadn't even thought of. So so that was definitely one of the things. And then the other thing that really struck me, and it might have resonated with you as a coach as well, Ollie. You know, as coaches, we have to hold space for our clients and often you know they bring things which which are challenging but we have the opportunity to have supervisions we have the opportunity to offload some of that and it was a really interesting 
and you know certainly because of her background doing medical negligence but you know the fact that often lawyers have to have challenging conversations are often involved uh, you know obviously medical negligence and and is a good example but you know they have to hold a lot of emotion for their clients and you know not trained how to do that and and know where to go to release it so um, both of those things, as I said, she brought on quite early on in the conversation, but both of those kind of struck a, a chord with me. So it's that idea of, of, yes, we equip lawyers and the profession to answer legal queries and deal with legal transactions. But how do we give them the, the, the human tools to both, both survive and endure as a lawyer themselves, but also give their colleagues and their um, their clients the emotional support that they need it's a great point it's a really great observation and I think it's one I mean obviously Elizabeth talks about it a lot in the context of the work that she's doing with law care but I think you know the more that we can talk about this and the more that we can raise awareness that it's okay to feel uncomfortable about some of the conversations that that we're having and um, you know be that in a space where you know it could be the breakdown of a marriage it could be you know something truly horrible that's happened to an individual but actually you know again going back to my background as a corporate lawyer you know it's a highly stressful environment when you're you know selling selling your baby or selling the company that you've been involved in for such a long time and I think often those emotions are are just completely overlooked yeah she sums it up really well with that phrase emotional competence which I I, I thought was was um, a really useful Um, lens to look at all those sorts of issues so thank you Claire for that great episode in the next episode Claire and I reflect on the series as a whole and consider how coaching can influence culture in the legal industry thanks for listening and goodbye Lawyers Coach is brought to you by Client Talk and Hansard Coaching if you're enjoying this series please rate us on your podcast provider so that others can find us if you're a lawyer and would like to take part in Lawyers Coach please visit our website lawyercoach.co.uk for further details. And you can also join the conversation on our LinkedIn group, Lawyers Coach. If there are any topics you'd like to hear us discuss, then just get in touch.